Radio Land, Podcastville, and all of our LARB readers. My name is Eric Newman, and you are listening to the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by reader-supported LA Review Books. I'm joined in the studio today by my co-host, Medea Ocher, the managing editor of LARB. Hello, Eric. And today we have a very exciting show for you. We're speaking with famed labor leader and civil rights activist Dolores Huerta and director Peter Bratt about his new documentary, Dolores. Maybe I say this too much, but it is a real honor to have her in the studio. Yeah, this guest was especially resonant for me just because of the way that I have heard about her so much in kind of reading in history, reading in histories of labor activism and the Chicanx movement in the United States. And actually, something that I did not mention in the interview, but one of my most remembered paintings that my brother did as a child was actually of the Huelga, the strike propaganda posters by Cesar Chavez. I know, that's why I'm saying it's very bizarre. And so I was remembering that. And then when I saw that we were going to have Dolores Huerta on the show, I both remembered how Dolores had been kind of taken out of that particular image, but also how widely the kind of work that she had done had circulated to the point that in his high school art class, A child from Lexington, Kentucky had actually painted that image. And that touches on one of the issues that really comes up during the interview, which is how she has been erased out of much of the history of the movement. And what I really felt having her there, and she's an 87-year-old woman now, she is very active. She is very politically on point, as on point as she ever was. She is remarkable, partly because it seems like she has not let despair creep into any part of yeah, her of absolutely. her understanding of how this world works. And that's very rare. And to have that much energy to do the kind of very difficult emotional and physical activism that she does at her age is truly astounding. It's really astounding. And having Peter there, who has worked on her story and has pieced it together in this movie, was also a real pleasure. So... Let's talk to them. All right, let's get to it. We're really excited today to have Dolores Huerta and Peter Bratt in the studio with us today. Dolores Huerta truly needs no introduction, but will provide one nonetheless. Huerta was the co-founder of the National Farm Workers Association, which later became the National United Farm Workers Union. In 1965, she gained national attention alongside Cesar Chavez for spearheading the Delano grape strike. Huerta has received numerous awards for her work, including the Eugene V. Debs Foundation Outstanding American Award, the United States Presidential Eleanor Roosevelt Award for Human Rights, and the Presidential Medal of Honor. Huerta is, most recently, the subject of Peter Bratt's documentary, Dolores, which has already won a number of awards on the festival circuit, including Best Documentary at both the San Francisco and Seattle International Film Festivals. Peter Bratt is a screenwriter, producer, and director. His first feature film, Follow Me Home, received the Best Feature Film Audience Award at the Sundance Film Festival in 1996. He co-produced and wrote La Mission in 2009 with his brother Benjamin Bratt, for which he won the Norman Lear Writers Award. Welcome to the show, Dolores and Peter. We're so happy to have you here. Thank you for having us. Thank you for having us. So, Peter, can you start out by just telling us kind of what inspired you to do the documentary? I mean, Dolores is nothing but inspiring, obviously. Exactly. But kind of, <laughs> why did you want to tell her story now? I wish I could take the credit for for coming up with why we had to make this film, but it, I really have to give credit to Carlos Santana, the great guitarist and musician. 
he has known Dolores for a number of years and he called me five years ago and said, we need to make this movie right now. And there was an urgency, you know, in his call. And that began what eventually became a five-year process, you know, bringing us up to right now. So can you talk a little bit about the editorial selection? Like there is so much archival footage and so many documents, so many stories and people to interview. I mean, how did you streamline that process? Well, I mean, th- that didn't happen until maybe almost two years into the process. I spent a lot of time researching. And the thing that, that became really interesting was Dolores' name was absent from the the historical record. Mm, you know, there, right. there have been seminal books written on UFW and Chavez and how about the union started, but I couldn't find anything about her as co-founder, which I found peculiar. And I, we weren't counting on being able to find so much archival footage. We were really hoping to, through interviews, kind of tell you about her history and her work. But when we discovered this incredible rich archive, we said, oh, we have to (laughs) show the audience. We don't have to tell the audience. We can actually show them because there's literally seven decades of incredible material that archives Dolores, you know, working in the trenches. I mean, that must be a goldmine for a documentary filmmaker when you come upon that kind of archival material. When you're faced with it, what did you find yourself doing? I can imagine just sitting there and watching it (laughs) and then (laughs) ending it there. What did you do? How did you, how did I, you I figure mean, out what to do with it? There was so much incredible, rich material, and you're looking for the narrative thread. You know, you're looking for something to make the story interesting and dynamic. So the most difficult thing was paring it down and really decide. Dolores' work is so vast and in-depth. Yes. I mean, right. she has worked in virtually every single movement of the 20th century. I mean, from LGBT equality to environmental justice to labor justice to racial justice to feminist issues. I mean, the list just goes on and on. I mean, fracking, even being even being at Standing Rock <laughs> last yeah. year oh and still doing the work yeah. at the grassroots level right now in Central California with their new foundation. But it really became a process of paring it down and managing you know, this beast. <laughs> <laughs> right. You know, Dolores, one of the things that is always fascinating to me about not just you in particular, but people like yourself who have a long historical grasp of not just grassroots activism, but like real political history. What do you make, it's a tough question, what do you make of like where we are now? So let me preface it by saying this. There's a moment in the documentary where you talk about how in the 1960s and 70s, there was so much, Angela Davis talks about how we talk about intersectionality now, but you guys were living it back then. And with the real belief that you could absolutely change the world and that change was imminent, it was right there. Do you think we're still, we still have that kind of hope well, I think we're seeing it manifest itself right now when we see all of the protests and the marches, you know, okay. the protests against what happened in Charlottesville. And when you see all of these young Anglos, uh, <laughs> <laughs> millennials and others, you know, that are supporting Black Lives Matter and mm-hmm. immigrant rights movement, I think it, that gives us a lot of hope. And so in a way, we can say to all those people, if you miss the 60s, they're back. <laughs> okay. That's, I like that. I like that. Yeah, well, we're here now. In some ways, I think we're going to be even stronger because as Peter said, you know, back in the 60s and early 70s, all these organizations were just starting. The environmental movement was just starting. Mm-hmm. The LGBT movement was just starting. And the civil rights movement was, you know, again in, in its second phase. And so, and all of these organizations are now institutionalized. 
yeah. back now, yeah. you know, much, much, much stronger than we were back there in the 60s and the 70s. And then in addition, we have the Internet, we have Facebook, you know, we have Twitter, Instagram, and all of these other devices and tools that we can use to organize. But the only thing that I like to keep saying, it's great that we march, it's great that we demonstrate, but we've got to take it to the ballot box. Mm-hmm. <laughs> because at the end of the day, the only thing that matters and the only way you can change policies is to have people vote. And okay. a lot of times, you know, people think that they, oh, well, I marched and I protested and so I did my job. No, it's not enough. You've got to get engaged at the local level, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah. And I'm talking about, you know, getting out there and voting in school board elections and city council elections. Or running for those positions. And running for yeah. the positions. And what we have here in Los Angeles, for example, we just had a big election for the school board. What happened? Now the people that are supporting charter schools now have control of the Los Angeles School Board. And that is going to be devastating, I think, when we're trying to stop the charter school movement, for profit charter school movement, to take over our educational systems. And now we've got this woman, in uh, head of education, uh, Betty DeVos. And, and, you know, so I think our whole public education system is now in danger. By the way, I just have to throw in, I'm also the president of the Dolores Huerta Foundation. Oh, right, yeah, yeah, of course. Organizing, and this is one of the big issues that we're working on, is organizing parents so they can control front their local school districts to make sure not only that the kids get a quality education, but to stop the suspension and expulsion of African-American Latino students, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. to stop that school-to-prison pipeline, to make sure that the money that they get from the state is spent the way it's supposed to be spent, especially extra money that they get for low-income students and Spanish learners and foster children. Is there something that you see right now as an obstacle to that to the growth and to the institutional foundation that these movements have is there something that you think is a new thing that's standing in the way or is an old thing that has been in the way for a long time and is still there i think that the biggest problem that all nonprofits have our nonprofit organization and other nonprofits is that number one the funders there's very little money of all of the money that's given on philanthropy a very small percentage of it goes to uh, nonprofits of color, mm-hmm. like ours, mm-hmm. a uh-huh. very small percentage. And if we want to even increase uh, th- that issue, is that in the Central Valley of California, I think they only give like something like $12 per person for nonprofits, where oh, it wow. might be hundreds of dollars for people in the Bay Area yeah. or Los, or Los Angeles. Angeles. And here in the Central Valley, it's kind of still Trump land there. You know, in Kern County, we are the only county that voted for Trump. You know, can you imagine that? And so right now, a lot of organizations say they want to come in there and they want to help. But we do need, with my organization, what we do is we hire organizers, we train them, we send them into communities. And it's very successful because once people learn that they've got the power to make changes, they do it. And they do it on their own. But you've got to create that leadership and that commitment from the people that actually live there. Not somebody coming in from outside to do it for them, that they can do it for themselves. And we're very, very successful, but it's very, very hard to get organizing money. The other thing I had too, and I learned this from Dolores firsthand, is sometimes I meet millennials who say, I'm going to boycott the system and I'm not going to vote. And what I learned from her is that's throwing away your power. Exactly, yeah. Because if you don't exercise your voice somebody else is going to be put in there and they'll exercise it for you and that's it's giving your power to the other side that's against you right and it's interesting because the film really one of the things that i think it does beautifully is it shows how some of the ideas that you had in terms of pushing various reforms and various changes worked right and so boycotts they work as we see in the film they worked Mm -hmm. however this is not (laughs) this is not the right kind right it's not you don't perhaps boycott the vote, (laughs) you figure something else out and boycott something else. There's plenty of other stuff to boycott. 
Or you become the candidate and run. Exactly. Right. Yes. In a similar sense, one of the things, to get back to what you were saying, Dolores, about institutionalization of some of these like movements over a long period of time, there's a parallel trend that seems troubling to me where we tend to put now a lot of faith in corporations to do that kind of advocacy work for us. So, for example, the transgender bathroom bill in North Carolina, it was like, oh, okay, well, now the NBA or the NCAA, well, they will take care of this because by withholding their monies and other companies, then we'll get the change that we wanted. But to me, that seems like a very dangerous deal to Mm -hmm. start making. So I'm wondering, in one sense, like, how do you see the landscape of activism as having changed in the present? And is it still most important to have people's bodies out in the streets? Absolutely, because I think people's bodies are are the ones that then force the corporations. And and that's another thing I think if if we use our uh, people consuming power, that we can make more of these organizations, the corporations behave responsibly, Mm. uh, which they don't often do. And I think it's great, uh, for instance, in Arizona, when all the corporations decided to boycott Arizona because they were going to say, we're not going to serve gays, whatever. They had the right to refuse a gay person from going into a restaurant, whatever. I wish they would have done that on women's reproductive rights, for instance. Mm. (laughs) And I wish they would have done that on Proposition 1070, you know, which was anti-immigrant, you know. So I guess now we have got the intersectionality, as they say, Mm-hmm. among movements, but we don't have it in the corporate world. Yeah, right. right. <laughs> we don't have it in the corporate world. In the film, we see your life, essentially from beginning when you're a very young woman to now. And when we're thinking about bodies and the power of bodies and being present, is there a way in which your understanding of your own body has changed and the power of your body has changed yeah. as you age? Oh, absolutely. Well, I think as I got more in touch with Gloria Steinem and Mm -hmm. Ellie Smeal from the Feminist Majority, Gloria took me from anti-abortion to choice. Ellie Smeal took me to, this is a right. (laughs) This is a right that women Mm -hmm. have. And I think we have to normalize abortion Mm -hmm. so that people can, like we did the gay movement, right? Actually going door to door to people with LGBT folks, with their children sometimes, and speaking to them one-to-one, I think we have to do more of that because we can't let them continue to use the abortion issue as a divisive issue. Mm-hmm. I mean, I have 11 kids. How many people have 11 kids? Somebody <laughs> out there is using birth control impressive. or something else. Yeah, you know? yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, and, you know, that was my choice, but I think we have to respect other people's choices and that we have to respect definitely women's right. And we did this in Albuquerque, New Mexico, by the way, where we had the people in Kansas came in and they thought, oh, this is New Mexico, Albuquerque, 50% Latino, majority mm-hmm. Catholic. We can pass this trimester abortion bill, you know, anti-abortion. And guess what? We won by 10 points <laughs> because the feminist majority and other feminist organizations like NARAL and Planned Parenthood, we all got together. We went in there and spoke to the people in New Mexico and Albuquerque. We won by 10 points. So I think that can happen again, but we've got to take that off the table so that good people who shouldn't be voting for pro-life candidates will realize that this is a divisive issue and they're just tricking you into voting for conservative candidates. I I, I do think, I want to add that oftentimes I think activists and organizers put an expiration date on their activism. Yes. Mm -hmm. I paid my dues, I did my part, so now I'm uh, getting up to my senior years and I, I can step back. And I think what we've seen with the film is a lot of Dolores' contemporaries are seeing the film and realize like, it's not over. There's still a place for me in the movement. There's still something I can do. And I think Dolores, who's 87 and still in the trenches, seven days a week, doing the work, I think is giving permission to a lot of elders 
you know that they can also take part because in the in the culture of course which is obsessed with youth Mm -hmm. you know elders we kind of put them out to the pasture we put them in old folks home we separate them and we say you know you you no longer have anything to offer right well i mean productive definitely and we lose their like knowledge and all those histories and yeah yeah. and i think most people you know they're so busy working they're trying to pay the rent they're trying to raise their children and they think well that political life that's for somebody else you know i'll do my bit i'll vote but they don't realize that it's not enough to vote. You've got to get involved in campaigns. You've got to get involved in your local political party, whether it's a Green or a Democrat or even Republican. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. get into those political parties to make sure we get progressive people that are going to be running for office and going to get elected. And please get involved in campaigns because you vote, that's one vote. But if you get involved in phone banking and door knocking and, you know, putting out the literature for candidates, for progressive candidates, you're participation can get maybe 80 people out to vote besides yourself at this point that we're on and it's very very critical point that we're on that we're in right now and i'm saying we can build a wall in the congress of congressional progressives right that can stop all of donald trump's policies but we need to build that wall and every single congressperson has to run for re-election for the house of representatives yeah and if we can you know take control of the house May take control of the Senate. This is in 2018, you're talking about. Yeah, in 2018, I don't care what crazy thing. But which starts now. Yeah, Yeah. but I don't care what crazy thing Trump does, you know, we can win. Yeah. I mean, I would not be against an actual wall around <laughs> his actual physical self. That would not be a problem either. And we're also saying that if you want to build a wall between here and Mexico, use the map of 1848. It'll start at Oregon. You know? <laughs> yeah, that's, that's a great suggestion. You're listening to the LARB Radio Hour, coming to you from Emerson College in the heart of Hollywood. We will return to our conversation with Peter Bratt and Dolores Huerta in a moment, but now we turn to this week's book recommendation. For this week's book recommendation, I'm joined in the studio by Medea Ocher, the managing editor of LARB. So Medea, what book are you recommending this week? Hi, Eric. The book I want to recommend this week is one of the only books I've had a chance to read over the past couple of months, which is very sad, but it was a great book. It's called Difficult Women by David Plant, and it is published by the New York Review of Books series. And it's a very slim book, which is why I was able to finish it, because I can only read 20 pages at a time over a series of a year. Anyway, luckily, I did finish it. It is a reprint of a book that came out I believe in the 70s, Okay. by David Plant, who is a novelist. And it is a memoir about his meetings with three difficult women. The first is Jean Reese, who, when he met with her, was quite old mm. and also quite drunk, which is not a surprise. The second is Sonia Orwell, who was uh, George Orwell's widow and a sort of literary hostess and seemed like a taskmaster of the literary world in England and Paris for a while. And the third is the feminist author, Germaine Greer. Mm. And Plant's book came out to a lot of criticism because Jean Rhys in particular did not come off so well. And he was criticized for taking advantage of the star power of his subjects and also the sort of sensational kind of almost gossip that he that he shares in the book. Do you think those critiques are fair? Is that your reading of the book? I 
don't actually think that. And that's why I'm recommending the book. I think it's gotten unfair kind of reputation from those criticisms. I think the assumption with that criticism is that a woman does not come off well if she doesn't come off nice. Mm. And so I actually think these women come off as very difficult, certainly unpleasant at times, very demanding of the people that they are with, very demanding of the work that they make and the kind of conversations that they have and the kind of conversations they engage in. But I'm not sure that that makes them come off poorly. That to me seems like a faithful portrait of three powerful Mm -hmm. and very complicated people that David had the luck to meet and spend time with. Sounds great. Okay, so can you give us the name and the author again? Sure. So the name of the book is Difficult Women, and the author is David Plant. All right, we look forward to reading that. Thank you, Dea. Thank you. You are listening to the LARB Radio Hour, and we now return to our interview with Dolores Huerta and Peter Bratt about Bratt's new film, Dolores. One of the things that also struck me throughout the film is how much narrative and the control of narrative is part of how power attacks the voice of the people. So there's two ways in which I can see this happening in your story. So one is with Jan Brewer and Tom and Tom Fo- Horn. And there they want to... I hear to their boyfriend and girlfriend. Actually, <laughs> <laughs> Firm pass. Um, but uh, that... They wanted to effectively stop from your story being told in schools, right, in civics lessons. So what is it that they are so afraid of? Like, what is it that power fears about narratives that they can't control? Well, we have to have uh, ignorance, and we have an abysmal state of ignorance right now in the United States of America. And they don't want my story or the story of my antecedents, you know, people that mm-hmm. came from Mexico and they tilled the lands and they built the railroad along with the Chinese and the Japanese and the Filipinos and the Hindus that were brought into the United States, uh, you know, to do all of this infrastructure work to build our country. You know, the Native Americans that were the first slaves, uh, African slaves that built the White House and the Congress mm-hmm. and many of those buildings in Washington, D.C. were built by African slaves. They don't want people to know that because if they get that narrative out there, then young Anglo children are going to realize, hey, you know, my parents, uh, grandparents from Europe, they didn't do it all. Yeah, right. And children of color will also have that pride in knowing that some of their people actually helped build this country. Did do that work, yeah. So the only way that they can retain that power is through ignorance. And there's the great Spanish philosopher, Jose Ortega y Gasset, who Mm -hmm. wrote a book called, um, you know, Revolution of the Masses. And what his thesis in that book was, if you do not have an educated citizenry, you will have mob rule, and the greedy and the powerful will govern. And that's kind of the state that we're at right now. And the only way that they can keep that power is when people are ignorant, when they're ignorant of the contribution of people of color, of women, of labor unions, you know, of our LGBT community, then they keep that power and economic power also. Because if people don't know how labor brought in the eight-hour day and better wages for workers and how our whole economic system works. Yeah, so yeah. we have the 1% or the 10% that control the wealth of the United States of America, you know, then they can keep their power. But, no, but I think, I think you, you came upon something that was at the forefront in, in making the film, and that is who controls narrative mm-hmm. and, and how, how is narrative used to control 
and direct the national identity and conversation. I yeah. mean, if that conversation is taking place right now with the statues in the South. Of course, exactly. Statues, you know, our heritage, our culture. Whose version and, and of I history. Think there's, a, there's, yeah. there's, a, there's a brother in the film who says, you know, it it's comes down to a battle of memory. You know, mm -hmm. the memory oh, that right. emancipates or the memory that enslaves. And if you look today at a lot of the, the immigrants, undocumented and documented, who come from the South, they're indigenous people. And if you can erase that identity and that memory, you know, then that, then that people forgets that they once owned the land. Mm -hmm. and, right. and so there's, there's definitely a political motivation yeah. behind controlling the narrative. And we can look at, you know, the narratives that we were being fed in the 50s, you know, about, you know, June Cleaver and Leave it to Beaver, you know, this is how women are supposed to behave. This is how women are supposed to be acting. We have the Columbus narrative. We have the Thanksgiving narrative. Manifest Destiny, all, you yeah. know, mm -hmm. the Doctrine of Discovery. These are all narratives that get woven into the, into the culture, and it's it's definitely used as a tool of control. Well, yeah. that gender narrative I find really fascinating in your case because you could see how all of your detractors mm -hmm. and even the kind of, I guess, more or less like neutral journalists mm -hmm. would always paint you as kind of a... Um, it's the term that we use, like a, a failed or inappropriate woman, right? That that's they, and that's a way of specifically not engaging with your politics, right? It's like, oh well, I don't want to talk about the politics. Let's talk about the fact that she has eleven kids, or that she's not with her children all mm -hmm. the time. How did you? Because those narratives are very dominant about like how we're supposed to be and our like gendered selves and what that means for our action in in social and political space. How did you find the power to kind of resist that and stay strong in yourself at a moment when I'm sure everybody and even voices in your head are being like, wait, maybe this isn't what I'm supposed to do. Well, I had the good fortune of having a, a feminist mother. And one of the things okay. she told me when I was growing up is uh, never listen to what people say about you. Just think about what you do. Mm. And as long as you're working to help people, let them criticize you. When I quit my job as a teacher, to start organizing and then go to Delano, not knowing wh where my next meal was gonna be coming from, in the middle of a divorce with seven children, I got a lot of criticisms, you know? My mother, unfortunately, she had passed away but by, th by that time, but I had relatives that stopped talking to me. And it wasn't until the union got very popular and we were in the news that they, they, they recognized me again. And, and, and it, a lot of hurt there, and especially since, uh, again, I was uh, twice divorced. And I remember one of, one of my relatives saying, well, you might think you're a good leader, but you can't hold a husband. <laughs> <laughs> well, but how did you find strength in those moments? Well, just by, not <clears throat> by ignoring them, basically. Okay. And by ignoring them and knowing that uh, I felt that I was doing the right thing, that I had luckily learned these skills of organizing from Fred Ross Sr., mm -hmm. who, by the way, I call him the father of the Chicano movement <laughs> because he's the one that organized both Cesar and myself into organizing. And uh, I just felt that what I was doing, I just felt it so strongly that you know I, I felt I had to do it. I mean, this, if we can help people get together and organize and fight for themselves and give them the belief that they can do it, you know, and that they, that they if they don't, then nobody's going to do it for them. This is the lesson that we learned from Fred, and this is a lesson that we convey to the people we were organizing. And I still do that today. And people say to me, well, you know, you're 87 years old. Isn't it time that you slowed down and retired? No, because there's another community out there in the Central Valley or in South Texas or in Arizona somewhere that when people learn that they have this power, that they can actually involve themselves in the political world. Mm -hmm. But that's their world also. Like one of, our, one of our women said, I didn't know this world existed. Mm -hmm. And that I could live and work in that world, but once they learn that they have that power, uh, that they you know they pay taxes, they pay the president's salary, 
you know, they pay the con- congressional people's salary and the city council per- and the school board. You can go in that world and you can make your voice heard. But I, I think you're 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 right on the pulse when when you when you identify that sometimes you know her detractors focus on personal attacks because it's really what makes her threatening. <laughs> it's, it's it's her politics and mm-hmm. activism and mm-hmm. and if you if you stand back and and look at the work, she's she's challenging at a very fundamental level the three pillars you know that hold up the culture. You know, it's capitalism number one. And patriarchy mm-hmm. and white supremacy, and I think it's it, certainly her gender comes into it. But when she was removed from the curriculum, as you mentioned, the social studies curriculum, I think it was it's it's because of her stances on those in those three areas that make her threatening. But they do that to women. I mean, just look at who, between right. Hillary and, and Trump. I mean, my goodness, Hillary with all of her incredible accomplishments. And I was speaking to a reporter earlier today. And he said, well, what were her accomplishments? I said, you're a reporter and you don't know? Mm. I mean, you know what she did when she was a first lady, uh, passing the first uh, bill for for child health care in the United States of America that covered like 15 million children. Mm -hmm. And uh, he had no idea. And he followed the campaign, but that was never conveyed to the public of all of her accomplishments. And here we elect somebody who is a sexual harasser, you know, who's right. a racist, who's almost a thief, you might say, you know, because of all of the money that it, they took from people at the Trump University and yeah. bankruptcies yeah. where workers never got paid. And yet we elect a person like that over a woman, accomplished woman. Peter, I, w- I also wanted to ask you, um, during the making of this film, is there a way in which you began rethinking your own narrative, personal, or um, is there also a, a, a way in which you began to approach politics differently? Because this also seems like a lot of pressure <laughs> on you, and it, it's it's an amazing example to have, right? But it doesn't, you might not feel okay just going home at night and, and watching The Bachelor or something. Right. So, <laughs> um, well, the Lord so has turned me into a news junkie, so. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I bet. No, there, there are definitely uh, times in the, with the current climate right. in the last few years, I, I have felt like checking out. Like, you know, what the hell is the use, <laughs> you know? Just feeling like my voice is really insignificant and doesn't make a difference no matter what I do. And, and really kind of being around Dolores gets contagious. <laughs> and I yeah. find myself, you know, getting this new kind of fortitude and, and then <laughs> I'm trying even now to engage and enroll, you know, family members and community members to, to, to become more civically engaged Right. Yeah, it's a difficult thing, I think. Um, I, mean, I also come from an immigrant family, myself, I'm an immigrant, um, to engage that community because the mode, I think, of living when when you come to a new place is very much keep your head down, do what you have to do, don't mess with, don't yeah. mess with the structure because you don't really know. I'm domain, yeah. Exactly, yes. And so that can be a very difficult job. And as you said, Dolores, it's it's so important to just go out and say, you can do the, you can do this. This mm-hmm. is this is a voice that you have, and um, you can in fact exercise it. Yeah, that's right. And if you don't do it, no, no one's going to do it for you. And that's right. the main thing that we tell people: you got to come together, you got to organize, you got to volunteer, you got to do the work. Because if you don't do it, it does not change. And that's the we hope the message from the film will get out to people so they understand that. And all of us can do a little bit. Whether it's you know send an email to Governor Brown saying you got to sign SB 54, you know the Sanctuary <laughs> State Bill, or you know support the Water Bill SB 17, or make a phone call, or join a demonstration, a march, write a letter, whatever it is, you know we can do a little bit. But yeah. I mean, you look at the news. We need to get engaged. Mm-hmm. You might say it's, it's the eleventh hour. <laughs> you know, yeah. It's yeah. Like no time to waste. Right. 
Right. I know that you don't love talking about yourself, but though you have started claiming that more recently, as you say mm -hmm. in the end of the film, you become more comfortable with that. What would you describe as like your power? Like how do you, what is it that like you're able to do as an activist that really helped you succeed in organize? I mean, you literally, ch the, the, the 1965 Delano grapes, I mean, world history in its way, right? So. What is it that you have or that you draw on in order to, like, do that work and do it so well? And what's for your, so what's long. What's your mojo? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Actually, yeah, yeah, yeah. yes. It, well, <laughs> it, it's, not, it's not a secret. I think it's just informing people. And I've been very fortunate uh, in the way that I was raised, you know, in a, a very multiracial community in Stockton, California. Okay. And so that I was able to relate to my neighbors and my friends who were African-Americans, uh, Chinese, Japanese, Filipinos, you know. Uh, even we ha had a friend from Afghanistan and, and the mm. Okies and the Arkies that were coming in uh, to California at that time. So I was very, very fortunate. And I think in just, you know, uh, being able to inform people, I think that's the main thing. And kind of to, again, erase the ignorance because people have these biases or they just don't know. But they, what you know? lets you reach people? Because that's hard to do. When, you, when people have biases, right, they throw up the wall, mm -hmm. right? But like what what do you do in order to bring that wall down? Because it's obviously, as we've seen recently, it's not just information, right? If facts alone would be salvation, then things would be fixed, right? And, and I think it's going back to what Peter said about stories. When mm -hmm. you tell people stories, you know, uh, then, I mean, then they kind of relate. And it's wonderful if everybody could just mix, because I think, like myself growing up, yeah. you know, there was no way in the world that I, I could be a racist against an African-American, because that was my friends, you know, Mary Cummings, Michael Mother, Charles Satterfield, you know, my very close friends who were African-American, you know. It's, it's so it, it would be great if we could get people to relate, but I think if you tell them stories, and also because they don't know oftentimes about ongoing genocide against African Americans mm -hmm. here in the United States of America, and if you point these out, these things out to them, uh, then you know they realize they start relating in some way that these are these are human beings. But I think the main thing is when you talk to them about how they can gain power, or you tell them stories about uh, things that you've been able to change, and then they can see that it's within their own framework that they can relate to that and they can think, oh, maybe I could do that too. You know, I could go on a march. I could go to Sacramento. I can go to my local city council. I can speak up. You know, and that's, I think that's what makes it happen. But you've got to work at it. Yeah. And so, like we were, t we, during our, our tour there, we, uh, we were with a young African-American woman who we were at a rally and she was doing Rock the Vote. And uh, we were at this rally and she did not have a speaking spot. And so I told her, you got to get up there and say, you got to tell them that you're going. Did you want to speak? Oh, she said, I can't do that. And I said, no. I said, you have to do it. The only African American that was there, and, and she wasn't going. And so I kind of forced. I told her, if you don't go up, I'm going to push you up there. <laughs> and so she did. She was up there, and not only did she speak about what she was doing on doing voter registration, but then she got hired uh, so by the Clinton. Heard her and hired her by oh, wow. the Clinton campaign. You know, and sometimes that's what you have to do. You just have to take that moment and to educate somebody at the moment or organize them. I like to say every minute is an organizing moment. You know, when you see something that. And that's what my mother taught us. You, if you see something that, uh, you know, somehow you can help in that situation, you have an obligation to do it. And I think that's kind of been my mantra. Where So when I'm on the Equality California board, which I'm on, mm -hmm. then I say, okay, we've got to support the immigrant rights movement. And they do, you know. Uh, when I'm on my board with the feminist majority, you know, we also talk. Uh, and they're very uh, connected. Uh, yeah, but sometimes they don't know what's actually happening in that community. So you inform them and you tell them kind of to bring people together. And always, you know, reminding people of their power, of what they can do, that's the important thing. 
What do you think, um, you know, just to kind of close, what do you think your legacy is? I know that uh, when we say legacy, sometimes that means that it's like something is over, which it, it is clearly not for you. But what would you like your legacy to be? Like, what do you want to bequeath to the next generation? Well, to, to be that of an organizer and to create more leadership in communities, because uh, when we go into a community, we never know who the leaders are going to be. But once we start organizing them and they start volunteering, then the leadership kind of springs up. It's very, very organic. And then you leave something behind. You, like uh, one of our women uh, who is, uh, speaks very broken English, and she got herself elected. Well, first of all, she and her husband passed a bond issue in their community. We organized them in a house meeting, she and her husband. And they passed a bond issue because they didn't have a gymnasium at their middle school. Mm. And the air quality, by the way, in Bakersfield, in the, this particular town called Weed Patch, where the Grapes of Wrath was filmed, by the way, oh, okay. they did not have a gymnasium at their, at their school. So they passed a bond issue, and they have a brand-new gymnasium, state-of-the-art at their school. So then they went ahead and she got herself elected to the uh, school district. And they wanted, the principal wanted to end the breakfast program for the farm worker kids because it was too much paperwork. So guess what? She got that rid of it. does sound inconvenient. She got rid of yeah. the principal. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then she got herself elected to the water board wow. uh, in, in another district. And then she found out that the manager that they had just hired had been fired for embezzlement from another district. So she got rid of him. <laughs> and then she started looking at the books and found out there was a quarter of a million dollars missing from the small utility district. So she called in the grand jury. And they just arrested the clerk of the water. I, I don't know. Wow. I'm not saying the clerk is guilty because she hasn't gone to trial. Sure, right. She may not be. But, I mean, at least some kind of an action was taken. And like her, of the people that we organized there in, South, in Southern Kern County, uh, we have about 11 of them now. They sit on city councils, school boards recreation boards and water districts and that's what that's what we're doing is we organize people it's not just about doing the work it's also about getting yourself elected taking that power taking that power because that's where the decisions are made and that's what we have to do all over the united states of america getting people to take the power and we have to do it through the electoral process I cannot think of a better way to close this interview. Thank you so much. We've been speaking with Peter Bratt well, and we, Dolores Huerta. We want people to come to see the movie. Yeah, <laughs> right, right, right. So let's yeah, that's what I was going to say. Yes. So we've been speaking with um, Peter Bratt and Dolores Huerta. Um, Peter Bratt is, is the director of the new film Out Now, Dolores, about the life and activism of Dolores Huerta. And we're on the internet, DoloresTheMovie.com, and it's going to be shown all over the United States of America. And if you want to learn about the Dolores Huerta Foundation, go to DoloresHuerta.com. You've just been organized by the <laughs> we <laughs> we have we have thank you so thank you so, so much for thank coming. you you're welcome Take thank you. this is a true pleasure. You've been listening to the LARB Radio Hour. Subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. And if you like the show, leave us a review and tell us what you think. The LARB Radio Hour's executive producers are Eric Newman, Medea Ocher, and Kate Wolf. Our engineer is Ernesto Oleano. Our researcher is Chloe Chap. Production assistant from William Broughton, Eleanor Duke, and Jake Levins. Special thanks to Alan Minsky, who's no one's moral conscience, for production assistance, and to Emerson College. Tom Lutz is the editor-in-chief and publisher of the Los Angeles Review of Books. 